Welcome to the Mind Speaking Podcast, where we talk about the human side of data. In other words, data, communication, and personal development. My name is Gilbert Eikelboom. I'm driven by curiosity, and my aim is to spread insights that you can apply in your life starting today. So, let's do it. Let's start Mind Speaking. Emotions are pieces of data. Do you agree? I spoke about emotional intelligence quite a bit in my book, People Skills for Analytical Thinkers. And today I speak with Tom Searold. Tom runs Equip, a coaching and training company, and he helps people unlock their emotional intelligence. If you think emotional intelligence is a vague, abstract concept, you're not alone. That's exactly what I thought as well. But Tom found a really concrete language with practical tips and examples to help you discover yourself and improve the way you collaborate with others. So I hope you enjoy this episode about emotional intelligence, collecting pieces of data and improving the collaboration and influencing others. Hey Tom, nice to see you again. Hey Gilbert, good to see you as well. Really good uh, speaking to you. We've Many times we've spoken on the phone, we've exchanged ideas, we've talked about emotional intelligence, being self-aware, what type of questions you can ask yourself to discover yourself, to discover other people. Uh, we've had long conversations and at some point I thought, why not have such a conversation and record it so other people might be able to benefit. So I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation. I know already know a bit about you, but for the people who don't know so much about you, what uh, can you share something about yourself, where you grew up? Um, and how you ended up starting your own company, Equip. Yeah, of course. And, and just to say, like, I shared the enthusiasm you have for this conversation. Like, I, we, I always come away having learned something from, from speaking with you. And I think we, the ideas we kind of co-create have been some, some real breakthroughs to the work I do as well. So, so, yeah, it's great to be here speaking today. So a little bit about me. You asked where I grew up. So uh, I'm from the UK. I'm from England. Uh, I grew up in a place called Brighton, which is on the south coast. So a lot of my childhood was spent either being on or in the water. So that's pretty much uh, every childhood memory is tied up with being at the beach or on the sea. Um, how that affects me as a person now, probably maybe there's a sort of slightly chilled vibe that I have. And I think that's just coastal living. I think a lot of people that spend time with the coast might be able to relate to that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people on the coast tend to have a chill way of living? I got a really relaxed vibe with you always, so I can affirm that. And why do you think that is? I think it's, I guess, it's different for different people. For me, it was the closeness to being by the sea, you know, being able to get down on the beach and just be stimulated by the kind of the natural environment, you know, you could have your brain could be going a thousand miles an hour about day to day life, about work, about relationships, about whatever. But when you're kind of sat on the beach, hearing the wind, looking at the waves, it puts things into perspective a little bit. It does have a sort of a sense of clearing out some of the noise that maybe actually doesn't matter that much, but you don't stop because you're constantly surrounded by you know people and things going on whereas the beach 
go down there early morning, you go down there at night. It can just be you and it can just be you being in the moment. So I'm pretty sure that has uh, something to do with it. And also, you know, I think, uh, yeah, some good bars and restaurants as well. So, you know, people like to spend their time relaxing, you know, maybe a slightly slower pace of life to some extent. Um, so I think, I think that's that kind of the mixture of that just has a slight after time has a bit of an impact on your kind of demeanor and the way you are with it. I see what you mean there. And I, I didn't grow, grow up close to the coast, but my mom did. So we always went there to uh, every summer, at least to, to go there for one or a few weeks. And when I was younger, I always saw the beach as a place where you go to when it's hot, right? Where it's warm, you go sunbathing, you go swimming. But more and more, I see the beach as a place to to relax, as a place of nature and a place to recharge. So uh, when I go to the beach, even if it's cold, then I fully recharge and become more chill. So I, I totally see what you mean there. How often do you get down to the beach now? Do you live close to it still? Mm, I live in Amsterdam, capital of the Netherlands. It's It's about... 45 minutes to to the beach so not too far but lately last year i've been to the beach uh, way more often so maybe uh, every few weeks which is much more than the years before so yeah yeah so i uh, interjected in your in your introduction with uh, with the question so please uh, tell us more about who you are yeah of course so um so i run a company called equip which is a coaching and training organization that focuses on helping people to, to really unlock and better access their emotional intelligence. And I've worked in the learning development space for the last five, six years now. Um, it was actually during the pandemic, which of course we all went through, where I had the real catalyst, if you want, or the that kind of incentive to start my own business, um, which is odd in a way you think of risky times to start a business then during a period of uncertainty probably scores pretty high on that list. But there was a sense where I was just coming to the end of my coaching psychology qualification at Birkbeck University. So I already knew that I wanted to start doing something that was more my own. And because the world kind of slowed down, I thought, well, this is going to be the time that I can really invest into getting this up and running. And I also knew that, you know, some of the associate work I was doing, there'd be less of that, you know, as people kind of tightening their belts, if that, that phrase makes sense. Um, and maybe even when I think about it beyond that, it was also, there was a sense where this would be a time where people would be doing a lot of reflection, reflection on the choices they had made up until that point, the fact that they were limited in what they could now do for at the time, we didn't know how long and the opportunity to start maybe working with those people, working with people and being able to discuss their thoughts and feelings around their careers, around their lives. It would be a time where I felt like I could add value there. And I decided that it was the right thing to do it was the right choice to make at that time and i guess i wanted to be able to and i wonder if this will make sense to you like sharp as myself so i've worked for some great companies i maintain really good relationships with a lot of the people that i i used to work with um 
but I don't think I I don't think you can help but be a little bit a representative of that company and adhere to certain kind of practices or ways of being. And I think that's good. But for me, this idea of wanting to really focus on what I was passionate about and have the autonomy to choose how I went about talking about that with people or working on that topic with people meant that it was important I did it for myself, you know. And yeah. Does that did you find that similar? I, I can totally resonate with that and how I how I often saw it is when I was still employed working for Cognizant for Capgemini, I really enjoyed the work and uh, the opportunities that I that I got and I'm really grateful for that. And at the same time, sometimes I felt like I needed to mold myself into a certain job description or certain responsibilities that were not completely close to me or what I wanted to do. Uh, so at some point or for years, I have been thinking, all right, the only way to really write my own job description, to define my own responsibilities, to decide what I want to do and what I want to work on and why, that the only way is to to start my own company, right? To work for yourself. So I can totally resonate with that. Yeah, it's, I, I think it goes back to some of the conversations we've had. I think we've had different journeys, but we've had a similar kind of perhaps evolving mindset. Um, I don't think we yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, can can resonate with the feeling of not not knowing exactly what to do, right? Uh, or maybe wanting to have a different career, changing changing careers, changing jobs, but not knowing exactly what belongs to you or what you really want to do. Uh, how did you, because you come across as a very self-aware person, but I'm sure you've done a lot of work to discover yourself, to find out what is really important to you. How this, this, did this process happen and, and how, what helped you to, to learn and gain those insights? Well, that's a big question. It's an important question. So let me, let me try and answer that. So, so self-awareness is like, I guess, at the cornerstone of emotional intelligence. Um, and again, it's a continual endeavor. Like some people, you know, we may assume some people have just got it from day one. It's rarely the case. It's as much a learned behavior as is an innate skill, which you've kind of just alluded to. Um, for me, I guess if I if I think back to how I was at school, then you know I was happy. Like I had a good childhood. I had, I had friends. I was really into sports, but I was shy. Um, kind of painfully shy, I would say. Like quiet. Um, and if I think back you kind of throw puberty into the mix of that a bit confused about where i kind of fitted in with you know with life and i was always kind of hesitant to kind of share my opinions i always kind of wanted other people's validation i wanted to know what other people thought before i kind of said what was on my mind i think you know that wanting to be liked and wanting to feel that i um i was like i had something to say I, oh you know i had something to offer um, and there's definitely, if I reflect on that, like internal issues that come, if you kind of stay in that mindset, but at the same time, I think that kind of started me on the journey to, to really being curious about other people. It was like my way of understanding how to interact came from looking and observing and seeing how people made choices or what their patterns of behavior uh, were. And I think that's really 
well, I didn't know at the time that's that kind of level of empathy and wanting to kind of understand what makes people tick it's kind of like led me on to where I am now and where I'm going in the future in terms of me increasing my self-awareness uh so I look at it as self-awareness is two things you have internal self-awareness which is really how you see yourself and external self-awareness which is how other people see you and to kind of cultivate a good level you need both those things and I think for me especially it was about having the confidence to find out what other people thought about me not be scared about what their answers might be understand what kind of things they saw in me or the potential they saw in me so that I could feel like okay I see how other people perceive me now I have a better understanding about how I can share what share what matters to me I don't think there was one moment that happened I think it's you gain that confidence through the experiences that life throws at you when you're put into positions where you have to speak out where you have to give an opinion and then you have to accept someone challenging that opinion um and that started really the beginning of my first job i had probably you know i worked in a we have you would probably know like pubs in england right they're, they're kind of different to bars on the continent they're they're places where you know traditionally people would go there to have a drink obviously but really be vocal really talk about things really expect you to kind of engage with them and be part of their their experience you know i wasn't that kind of person but working in that environment and you know having to kind of be part of um, those conversations allowed me to start hearing myself kind of share opinions seeing how people responded to me starting to kind of own who i was a bit more and starting to see what the qualities i brought into conversation and what the bits that i was kind of lacking in a little bit um so yeah the beginning i guess the first job i had was uh you know was a big moment for me and then university then working in kind of commercial roles where it was always about people it was always about having to understand other people and then having to understand me that would make the difference um right and sounds like that that first job and being in a bar often helped you uh, get out of your comfort zone and, and deal with people or an environment that expected something different from you where you need to be more vocal and express your opinions and show yourself and sounds like that pushed yourself to yeah show more of yourself and that helped you discover more about yourself yeah that's that's exactly it it was you know and it's of you know i was 18 at the time and you know pretty much everyone was older than me so you already feel that sense of trying to you know impress your elders or kind of feel like you fit into a to an older group you get acceptance from it so to do that there was a sense where you have to come out of your shell a little bit if the phrase makes sense um and then you start understanding how you fit into that and i'm sure you have that when you're younger at school but maybe maybe you're not quite there yet you're still kind of being in the same environment and then suddenly you put into a different environment and you start really understanding how you behave mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that's why i think it's also so can be so valuable to live abroad in a different context not just live far away from your family and friends but also in a different culture where you're you might be the the odd one out 
by definition, right? To understand, hey, how other people live their lives and how different or sometimes also similar it is, I think is a really good experience. And you, you touched upon emotional intelligence a few times. And when I heard about emotional intelligence for the first time and some other people might resonate with this is that I found a very abstract or vague third term, you know, what, what does it mean exactly emotional intelligence? How can emotions be intelligent, right? Because they only distract us. That's what I thought. But you speak about emotions being data. So can you tell us a bit more about that? What is emotional intelligence and how can it be data? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think the point you made there is like a lot of people are now familiar with the term emotional intelligence, but it does sound a bit abstract. It doesn't always kind of line up with modern day out modern day thinking perhaps or even if you like google it right you can find a, probably a thousand definitions to kind of try and establish what this means so i try and keep it real simple uh motion intelligence at its heart is about being able to tune into yourself and the ability to tune into others as well and it's about looking at emotions as data rather than these kind of intangible abstract things that we experience that we have no control over and you know they kind of don't really matter because you know it's our rational brain it's our it's our logic that's uh that should be in charge well the point is that we're experiencing emotions all of the time right they don't kind of live in boxes i think quite often when i talk about emotion intelligence people think oh this is about controlling really acute emotional experiences or understanding them like when someone as something that is really like high energy or a low level of unpleasantness or really low pleasantness. And, you know, it could be anger or grief, or it could be, you know, seeing someone get really upset about something. And that's fine because that is like the emotional expression of something we're experiencing, but it's only kind of the tip of the iceberg. Like at any one time, those emotions are kind of underlining how we think. So if, even during this conversation, right, like both of us will be having some kind of underlining emotional experience. So right now, I would say I feel at ease because I know you, we're talking about stuff that I'm interested in, I'm comfortable discussing, at least I feel comfortable discussing. So it's kind of like quite low energy, but a nice level of pleasantness. It will probably get, you know, more lively. That emotion will change as maybe we we uncover something new and interesting that we hadn't kind of explored before. Well, then it could shift. It could go into slight apprehension because maybe you ask a question. I'm like, geez, I'm not sure how to answer that. And then suddenly, you know, so it's kind of high energy, but not so pleasant. And then if I, you know, didn't answer it very well, I could get a bit sullen, which is like low energy, unpleasant because, oh man, I've screwed that up. So that emotion that we have is can change all the time, depending on the context of the situation. And I think, it's impossible for us to like consistently be having to check in with ourselves about the emotion we're experiencing. But if we just think about the times where we suddenly it's overwhelming, then we're missing out on this whole kind of raft of like information that's going on that we can actually pause and think, well, actually, because I'm feeling that I'm going to behave in a slightly different way, or maybe I'll behave slightly differently now than I would then. And when we start doing that, we get much more understanding of ourselves and kind of what triggers those emotions within us. 
And then when we know how to do that, we can start doing with other people as well. So I guess the data aspect comes from the fact that they're there. They're not something that, okay, we don't necessarily control them, but we can actually put a a bit of focus on them to understand them what they're telling us. And then it's our choice whether we choose to listen to them or ignore them, right? And different situations will call for different um, types of responses. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's really good to like act on our emotions. Sometimes it's really important that we don't suppress that emotion, but we might want to regulate it. We might want to just behave based on that emotion. So, And can you give an example of, of, of both of those situations when, when you might be willing to act on a certain emotion and when you want to do, uh, take a different decision? Do you have any, any examples maybe from the, from the business context, doing a presentation or a meeting or uh, an example from your own life? Yeah, of course. So, so let's take a, a pretty like universal emotion, uh, anger, right? And a lot of people see anger as fundamentally a bad thing. You know, it's a negative emotion. It's disruptive. And sure, they, it has the potential to do that. But if you look at something like anger as rocket fuel, right? If you channel that anger the right way, it can really propel you forward. And if you think about some of the times people in the history of the world or whatever have been angry, they've been motivated to do something about that, to fight injustice or to to speak up when no one else was speaking up. So it's actually a really high energy emotion that we should experience and we should understand why we're experiencing it. The problem with anger is it's because it's like rocket fuel, it can also blow up in our face and then it might blow up in other people's faces and that's not so good. So when we, don't acknowledge we're having the anger or we're trying to suppress it and say, we can't allow ourselves to get angry. We're not actually helping ourselves very much. We're not actually fully immersed in kind of what the experience is that we're going through. And if you can think about anger, you know, it, it means different things for different people, but we can get angry when we see someone in a meeting not listening to us. We can get angry when we're doing a presentation at ourselves because We've just missed the whole kind of really good anecdote that we were going to say. And it can kind of be like disruptive and like distracting. But then the important thing is we reflect on what that anger is telling us and whether we should do something about it. Now, if in the middle of a presentation and I've missed a whole slide, should I start berating myself in front of an audience? Probably not. But it's okay to acknowledge that the fact that I've missed that out because I can learn from that next time. If I'm in a meeting and someone's ignoring me, I can get angry and not say anything about it, just let it boil up. Or I could get angry at that person immediately. Both those things aren't going to help. But if I'm aware of the fact I'm angry about it, I can then have a choice to do something about it. So I can say, rather than continually assume this person isn't interested in what I'm saying, I can say to that person, hey, is there something on your mind? Did you do something you wanted to contribute? I'm just, I'm just aware that you haven't kind of engaged any of the materials. So we can kind of channel it appropriately. That's the, I think it's always the key thing is about, we have that ability to self-manage our emotions. We just don't always think we do. We always have that pause between like a stimulus and a response. And the more we practice doing that, because we can't just be perfect at it all the time, the better we get a feeling like we're more in control of situations, the more we understand what's going on around us. So I, I don't know if that's a good example, but it's 
one that might resonate because I think anger is something we've all experienced. And a lot of the times we automatically think it's, it's a bad thing, but actually it's something which is fundamentally telling us something important. Yeah, I like that. I, li- I really like the example because I'm, I agree many people see being angry as something that is negative or, or, or bad. Or, and I think when you notice that you're angry, you can also dig deeper and understand what makes you angry, right? Sometimes I don't really have, a, have an idea why I feel a bit sad or a bit angry or a bit frustrated. And only later I discover why, what made me frustrated, right? And then you have the option to act on it. And as you pointed out, it's so difficult to find a balance between uh, acknowledging it and expressing it, but not expressing it in a uh, rocket fuel way that overwhelms people and insults people maybe even. And I think that's also what most uh, people or, or many people in, in, in data analytics and analytical thinkers in general struggle with, you know, what is the, it's either uh, on this side or on this side, it's either too strong or, or maybe uh, totally swallowed and not, not expressed at all. Um, what are your thoughts on finding, you know, the, the right balance or expressing the emotion, the anger or whatever it is in a way that is not insulting, um, but also still, uh, expressed if that's what you want. Yes. That's a good question. So you can sort of take it. So we sort of take this back one step. The, The first thing you need to do is acknowledge the emotion is happening. Um, I think the problems come when people become defensive. Like if I suddenly started raising my voice at you, you might be, Hey dude, you sound a bit angry. And because I haven't acknowledged that anger, I'm like, no, I'm not angry. And it becomes like this, this messy situation of dishonesty and that it's terrible for building trust and being candid in a productive way. So the first thing you do is I would say is before you even start thinking, okay, I'm going to just try something out is you become a bit more introspective start labeling the emotional experiences you have start deciding that as opposed to just saying that "Mm, i don't feel so good today try and get specific about what that that feeling is like for you and you can make a note of it there's a really good for people that are you know obviously using technology there's a great app called the mood meter app it's developed by a guy called dr mark brackett from the yale center of emotion intelligence where it gives you a chart of different emotions, again, dependent on the level of energy and the level of pleasantness, where you can log in any time of the day and say, right now, yeah, that's the emotion I'm feeling based on how energized I am, how how good I feel. Kind of make a note of that and record through the day what emotions you're experiencing. And it's kind of like having a live journal of your like emotional body clock. And if you start looking at that data, you'll start figuring out, okay, well, that time of the day, I have a meeting with this particular person, or this time of the day, I'm about to go for a run. And you can start seeing the kind of things that stimulate that emotion. And once you kind of make sense of that, it's actually easier to talk about those emotions because you understand yourself a little bit better. And then when you're able to communicate how you feel and say, look, I'm feeling a bit angry because of the situation, it stops it from becoming, I'm just being angry at you and you just have to accept that. And it, as it actually is about you, isn't it? Because I'm being angry to you right now. My voice is raised. It's about realizing that we have an ownership 
of our emotions if we if we choose to have it but the starting point is just for us to start recognizing that emotions are happening all the time even the ones which feel like mean no difference in the world like if you feel mellow right so maybe you finished the long day training and you want to order a pizza or whatever you know that's fine isn't it you don't have to think about that too much but if you just check in and realize the emotion you're experiencing and label that increase your emotional literacy you've added another way of describing how you feel and if you think about when you have to have difficult conversations or you have to actually articulate yourself so people understand what you mean the more you can draw on that kind of like experience and explain that to someone the more you've got to offer them the more they can understand the less they're just seeing the kind of outputs of what you're doing they can kind of see the inputs as well i like it i really like that perspective and i try to do that as well if i feel really tired and i'm ha i'm about to have dinner with my girlfriend i try to tell her right i try to tell her hey um let's have dinner uh, just so you know, I'm I'm very tired. Otherwise, you might be making assumptions that I'm not interested in your stories or you're talking about work. And you give them data about you, and by expressing that, they understand you better and they will make less less assumptions. They have more data about you. So I think there's a lot of um, value in there to discover how you feel and then also express that to other people. And what I'm wondering now while I'm talking is. I think a lot of people see uh, the value of understanding your own emotions and understanding what's going on because that's you, right? That's me. Um, but why should I care about the emotions of other people? <laughs> nice. What I think is that it's it's kind of similar, but it's mirrored because we're all interacting with other people, right? Whether you want it or not in your job, you don't, you don't do not always have a choice in your personal life. I hope you do. You do. So I hope you uh, behave accordingly. So you choose your friends uh, wisely. Um, but by understanding more about other people, you can also uh, create better collaboration. So if I know about you that you're always very simple example, that you're often moody in the morning, then maybe it's better to have a meeting in the afternoon instead of the morning. But of course you can go way deeper with that. So the more data I have about you, the better I can interact with you, the more pleasant our conversations become and the more productive they become if you're at work. Because if I know that if, if you are a very, a person who's, who's very direct and gets uh, very annoyed when I present a lot of technical details and, uh, things you don't really care about that you get annoyed, you get irritated, you get easily distracted. If I know that about you, if I know about your emotional state and your triggers, then I know when I present do a presentation to you that I should come with a concrete uh, story, right? Not a very long narrative with all types of technical explanations, but I need to be on point. So that's why understanding other people collecting data about them, understanding their algorithms, then you uh, can better interact with them and have more pleasant, more fun and more productive interactions. That's what I think. Well, I think that's perfect. And also I like uh, 
I know you talk about algorithms in in your book, which of course you know, you know I'm a big fan of. Um, and you make a really good point there, which I think sometimes people don't immediately think about when we when they think about other people's emotions. They kind of get caught in the idea that you know we have to think about other people's emotions because we have to be nice to them or we have to be uh, you know it's just it's just a polite thing to do and sure i'm all for people being polite and nice right you know i like to live in a world where people generally like spending time with each other and you know i'd rather have you know a happy environment where people want to be there the point is that you've made which is so true is that understanding other people's emotions is for our own benefit as much as anything else it gives us again data to understand how we can productively interact with them for collaboration for leadership for just any relationship dynamic right it's the idea that if we think that we should just look at people's like output and look at that as a as you know a logical kind of um kind of template for how they're thinking then it's inaccurate because they'll be thinking different things based on the emotions they're experiencing. And now we're never going to be able to get a hundred percent accurate perception of someone else. Now you can build up a really empathetic approach, right? Where you start really trying to understand what makes someone else tick and kind of relate that to your experience, but also appreciate it's distinct to them. You can guess all you like, you'll never get it accurate. If you ask them, you're going to get a better idea. But the point of trying to do that again, helps you, to understand how to be, you know, a better version of yourself as well, you know, and it can come down to like how you can help influence someone, right? I'm not talking about like the dark arts and manipulating them. I'm saying that if you want to convince someone of your argument, then just working on a logical level will only get you so far. You have to understand what emotions are driving their way of looking at the world as well. So if, if you're able to tune in with those, you know, you're going to have a much better chance. You know, we've probably both been in a situation where someone has said, just I'm curious, are you feeling like this at the moment? And they've said how you're feeling, right? And what does that make you feel? It makes you feel like this person gets me. This person listened. I feel understood. This person is worth me spending time with. It's worth me listening to them. It's worth me doing something with this person right so it's it's actually in your benefit to take that empathetic approach if you want to get people on board so yeah i think how you explained it is is a really good way of looking at the value that comes from wanting to deepen your understanding of other people's emotional experiences mm -hmm. thank you thank you you're you're a coach and and trainer and i'm curious because coaches at least good coaches are famous for asking really good questions right so i'm curious what type of coaching questions do you often use or what have you seen that benefited the the coaching yes yeah, it's, it's a good question how, how long have we got gilbert it could be uh, <laughs> i say that i don't say that in an arrogant way like i've got thousands of incredible questions but i guess i have that geek tendency where i like collecting coaching questions so i'll hear a question and think that's that's awesome like what a great kind of inquisitive open question that that could be the key thing of course is like you can have all the great questions but it's knowing when to use them because otherwise you just feel like look, look at me impressing you with my questions and uh aren't i smart which kind of takes away the whole point of the coaching right it's about them not you 
But if I think about the work I do, which is helping people to kind of think about their emotional intelligence and, you know, what their emotions are telling them, how, what other people's emotions are telling them, then I guess my questions kind of get shaped a little bit around helping them understand those experiences. Um, so I've got a few questions. Um, if I give you one that I think is particularly powerful and maybe a lot of people resonate with. So to give you some context, a lot of the work I do with uh, clients, they never have enough kind of time to do everything they want. They have competing priorities. You know, it's almost a bit like overload, you know, time management, like what do I do first? Well, the reality is you're never going to achieve everything that you want to do. And that's a bit of a bit of pill to swallow. You know, you could have all the time in the world, but if you have an active mind, then there's always going to be something else you want to do. Now, the thing is, you could ask the question, so, okay, what is it you want to do? And that's a fine question. You know, someone could kind of expand upon it a little bit. But a question I like to ask is, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? So if someone has said, I think about, I'm, going to do, I'm definitely going to do this. That's going to be the first thing I do. It's like, okay, great. So what are you choosing not to do by doing that? Because the thing is, we have this cognitive bias where we just think we can achieve much more than we will. So we underestimate how long things will take to do. <laughs> we, we think that will take an hour. It's like, and normally we're still doing it the next day. You know, and it's not always the case and we can learn to get better at that. But the point is, we have to be saying no to something to say yes to something. So us having the call today means that I've had to say no to something. Now, what I've said no to might not be that important. It may have been that I just wanted to have a longer lunch break, right? Or something like that. I don't need to have that. But in other situations, it could be a case of like, well, both these things feel important. So which one am I going to say yes to? And the one you say yes to should matter on a motivational value level. It should be doing something that is really important to how you regard yourself, right? So it's about if I'm doing, for instance, with this conversation right now, what is my motivation value for doing it? It's because I know that I'll come away having learned something with someone that I really enjoy spending time with. And that's kind of like important to like how I live my life. Now, if the reason that I was doing this is because I just wanted to get a podcast out there and hope that it w wins a bit of business, then it would be a bit like, well, is that a good enough reason? I don't know, because it's not really why I set up my business in the first place or do my coaching. So it's just that question basically gives you a chance to, to recognize the fact that you have to say no to something, which a lot of the time people don't. People just think they'll do that thing later. And actually, sometimes you have to make a choice on something. So that's uh, I don't know if that resonates with you. That's one example. It, it does. It does. And uh, it brutally resonates because. It's a question I need to ask myself more often, or people need to ask my, my uh, to me more often because I'm I'm really enthusiastic and often easily enthusiastic about new projects, new things I want to do. Also, I I'm I'm not very good at saying no to people, which makes this even more difficult. So and and I over, and I usually underestimate over underestimate how much time something requires. So all that combines means that I often take up too much work and 
that that means either more stress or the fact that I'm not able to finish in time or uh, things uh, get delayed. So I, I really struggle with this one and I get much better. But if I have more focus and say no to more things, especially when taking up new projects, everything goes so much smoother. I have more focus on the projects I say yes to and the, the, the quality of the work is so much better. So I'm really trying to improve here. That's good. That's good. I know we've, we've talked about this before and it's because uh, it, it's an interesting question because it does work on different levels too. It works on, it makes people stop and realize that are they saying yes for other people as opposed to saying yes for themselves? And it's mm -hmm. okay to say yes to other people, right? And I think that kind of altruistic nature that people have, that supportive nature, is kind of what makes business social groups tick. But if we start doing it at the expense of something that matters to us, then it doesn't actually help us in the long run. I think, um, yeah, and I should shout out the fact that this is a question from a book called The Coaching Habit by a guy called Michael Bungay-Steiner, um, which is which is a great read for anyone that's kind of interested in the kind of questions that might not be the most obvious ones, but the ones that might just shift the way you think about something. Because... There's no right or wrong answer a lot of the times. It's more about just presenting you with an opportunity as a coach, as a client, to think about something a bit differently and to invest some time in how you really feel about something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that book. It's it's a really small book. You can finish it in in an evening, maybe even. And it's it's a set of questions with con with 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 context, and it's it's very helpful if you lead a team of your or if you're trying to to help people grow, but even in a regular setting, in a conversation or a meeting at work, it's so helpful to have those questions uh, ready and, and see where you can use them. I really like the book. I posted on LinkedIn as well on it. Yeah, it's a great, and I think you mentioned there as well, you know, if you're a leader, if you're a data leader or whatever, and you're, you're working with one of your team members, either through, you know, formal kind of like review meetings or just informal conversations, then, you can ask that question, especially if you see someone that's maybe starting a project before they finish something else, just as a way of helping them to realign what their priorities are as well. And just without saying, being direct and saying, you need to do this because of that, it's getting them to recognize actually how important is this right now? Um, so I think that's, that's one of the questions that I think, and again, these are questions you can ask other people, right? If you, if you want to build trust, you build rapport, have you know, below the surface conversations, you can do that. So I think that's a good one for um, kind of introspection and self-awareness. I think a good question for kind of the other kind of side of emotional intelligence, which is more about social awareness and relationship management, is, so put it this way, so I would say 90% of the coaching conversations I have with people, the coachee or the client is complaining about someone else. Right. And there's no judgment for me here because we all have the right to get frustrated and to to vent. But that doesn't always work. You know, it, it feels good at the time, but it doesn't really change things. It's kind of like it's a bit kind of self-indulgent. Um, and we end up thinking that basically a lot of people think that well, if it wasn't for that person, things would be fine. Well, that person is just specifically out to get me. And that's kind of a rational thinking, but our brains like that narrative because it takes away accountability from us. 
So one of the questions I like to ask people of that is, and again, so this is inspired by Brene Brown that I know you'll be familiar with, is when someone is annoying you and you can choose a more fruity word, if you like, for annoying, is to say, okay, what is the most generous assumption I can make about their behavior right now? Because you talked a little bit about assumptions. And basically the idea behind that is almost all the time people are doing the best they can given the circumstances they find themselves in. Yes, you can say there's rogue examples where people are toxic, malicious, nasty people. But if we're honest, 90% of us in our day-to-day lives, every time we feel that someone's annoying us, that person isn't there to make our lives hell. They haven't got enough time to make our lives hell for a start, you know, but we're, we're perceiving it as that. But by asking that question, we start taking that empathetic approach and thinking, well, what are they trying to achieve here? Or like, what is their reasoning for doing that beyond just trying to annoy me? Because it doesn't really make sense that they would just want to annoy me. Surely they want me to not be annoyed. And it just starts us thinking about that person may be coming from a different place. But what is that place? And actually, if we understand that place, firstly, we'll have a better relationship with them. And secondly, we'll switch the narrative, right? We'll calm our, our own thinking. will become a little bit more pragmatic and realistic and actually less kind of um, blamey on other people. Um, so I think it's always a good one. To, and it's, it's one that kind of people have to have a kind of a bit of a big swallow to because when you first say it, they don't really want to acknowledge it. They'd much rather say, well, it's the other person that has to change. Exactly. It's a really, really, really cool question. I've, I've never heard, heard this question specifically. Uh, I did read about different frameworks that have the same uh, underlying mechanism, but I really, I really like it, but because I, I also don't think it's, it's naive to, to approach it this way because it, many times people are just trying their best, right? But they have, they're in their own world. They're late for a certain reason. You don't know about, they, they, they were a bit rude maybe to, because they had their reasons and it doesn't mean you need to accept everything. You can draw boundaries, clear boundaries and have a conversation with them and about what they did, but approaching it from a more empathetic perspective, ask, asking yourselves ab about the most generous assumption. Um, it removes the bias of you putting all the blame on the other person. So I think it's a very, very powerful question. Yeah, it's a, it's one that, you know, I agree with what you're saying. It's one that I think, and we've talked about this before as a coach, what is your role? Is your role to just shift people's thinking because you think that that's right? Or is it about helping them just to see a different perspective? Now, you know, arguably different coaches will give you a different answer, but, but to me, where my work comes in, it's about, even if that's a subtle shift in perspective, it's often those subtle shifts that make the biggest difference, you know, because people then use that to come and suddenly build out their own conclusions. You know, you're moving away from kind of like telling them that that's, you know, you're not telling them not to do something. You're telling them just to re-look at how they're seeing something. And then their mind will start creating a slightly different narrative i think that's what you're trying to do you're not doing it for your sake you're doing it to give present them with more options to view a situation 
you know, a lot of the time I think as well, people, if they're not, you know, I'm not saying everyone does this because not, not every session is people like moaning, but people feel maybe that it comes from a lack of control, right? Because we can't control other people's thoughts. We can't control their behavior. We can maybe influence it, but really what we can do is control our own and we can control our responses to that. So anything we can do that feels like it gives us more options, it gives us a bit more control. And that fundamentally feels good. That fundamentally feels empowering. And I think as, you know, as leaders or as, as teammates, we should be wanting to make the people around us feel like they have options. They have different perspectives. They feel like, you know, in a non-judgmental way, they can, they can say how they feel about something, but also be open-minded about, you know, different, different opinions, different kind of experiences. So I guess part of the work is to try and create that kind of culture within teams. And I'm sure that's, I know that's the kind of work you're, you're doing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this perspective, this approach is not only helpful for coaches or even data leaders, but by asking more questions and letting other people think and see it in their world, it's way more uh, lasting as well, because you can tell people, no, this is what you need to do, or this is what you need to do. But that's not really coaching or, or, or helping in many cases, because you don't know everything about their situation and you're trying to force your perspective on other people. And by asking questions, you let them be behind the steering wheel while you guide them and give them pointers to suggestions to, to look at and to consider. And only if they really want to adopt it, they will adopt it. But then the behavior might change forever, right? Instead of just those five minutes. It's so true. It's made me think about, again, something that when you think is, as a, as a leader as well, or maybe a data leader, it can kind of cross over into different functions. And you think about, again, looking at your team and maybe looking at the way they communicate and stuff. I think sometimes it's easy for us to be quite um, like black and white with our thinking. We just see the outputs. We just see the sort of the express behavior. We don't see what's driving that behavior so much. So, for example, maybe this would be familiar to you or listeners. You can kind of work with people. You, know, you, you may have someone in your team that is really loud, right? They just they just don't stop talking, and you can think, well, they must think their opinion is more important than everyone else's. They must think that they know best, um, and we make that assumption. But actually, maybe what's happening is. They come from an environment where the only way for them to be heard was to speak up and to keep speaking up because no one was going to ask their opinion. No one was going to give them the time. And that habit had just now become this kind of like overdone behavior that they use. And at the same time, we could have someone that's really quiet and never says anything in a meeting. And more you might be thinking, well, they're not interested. Why, why are they not saying anything? And it could be that that person, again, the input of that is that they're scared of speaking up they're scared of saying something because again their narrative past experiences has told them that it's better to stay quiet and wait till i have more information to make a decision now you can look at it and just say that well both behaviors need need working on but until you have that one-on-one -on -one conversation until you choose to kind of share that with someone but in a non-judgmental way you're never going to change that fundamental behavior because you're never going to allow someone to see the impact of their behavior because you either be shooting it down, which will just make them feel defensive about it, or you're going to be just, yeah, not not acknowledging that there's an issue there. So, 
I don't know whether it's so something that I think is really important in terms of helping build communication skills within team is about having a really strong feedback culture and being able to speak transparently and candidly and about thinking about not the person but the behavior and being able to share when you're giving feedback the behavior rather than make it about the person um there's something in your book that really uh inspired me i'm gonna put you on the spot here so uh no pressure but you see something called the keep start, keep start stop method right that's right can you say a bit about that yeah yeah sure so what i um what i mentioned in my book is a feedback method that i find very useful it's the keep start stop method so you ask people three questions in your surrounding so it might be a personal life or at work or your manager your peers whoever we ask them three questions what should i start doing so what am i not doing now um, that i should be doing according to you and what should i keep doing something that is appreciated by the other person what should i keep doing and third one what should i stop doing so maybe there's a certain behavior that annoys people or they see that it doesn't lead to the results that they're after um, so those three questions are pretty specific but it helps people to channel their feedback in a uh, in a very productive way so i found that these three questions start uh, keep stop are very effective in getting feedback that is useful and also implementable yeah i think it's uh so so reading about that had a massive impact on the way that i both ask and give feedback as well those three questions and i guess from a kind of emotion intelligence context as well kind of my thinking around that method is that what you're basically doing is letting someone see how their behavioral strengths play out in reality and you're giving them that external self-awareness as well so they can see what's really going on but not in a way which is like so acute that it's just sort of like it's it feels like it's just kind of like criticism or it feels like it's just like praise it's actually getting them to start seeing how their behaviors play out so when you're telling someone you should keep doing this, you're basically saying these behavioral strengths you've got work really well and they get results. So you should keep doing that, right? You should start doing this means that you've probably got some untapped potential that you're not using here, but I can see it. Other people can see it and it will be in your interest to start using maybe a strength you have got, but you just don't use it very often because you lack a bit of confidence. So give it a try, you know, try it out. You know, know it's a safe environment because that's been encouraged. And the stop is interesting as well, because often what people should stop doing is overdoing a strength. So to give you an example of that, this kind of comes from sort of positive psychology theory and something called relationship awareness theory as well. Not that you don't, not expecting your listeners to geek out on that, but it's the idea that a lot of the things we want people to stop doing are things that people are doing because they think it's getting them the result they want they can't see the fact it's just being used in the wrong context. It's like if you try and, you know, you need the right tool for the right job, right? If I was going to go and repair my roof right now, you know, and you know that I've done up the house, didn't do the roof actually, then it's not much good me going out there with a screwdriver, right? That's not going to, that's not going to help. But maybe because I really like using my screwdriver, I'm going to try and do that job with it because I'm so used to it. 
but actually I'm just I'm kind of got into this habit with it. So, for instance, I know a lot of people that are really helpful. You know, I'm surrounded by people both in terms of my my personal life and professional life that will do things to really kind of like be available to to offer input and to to give a guiding hand. And that's great in the right context. There's nothing better than having help and support. But the thing is, if someone is trying to help too much, it can kind of look a bit different. You know. It can look a bit like that person is trying to take over. It can look a bit like that person doesn't trust your ability to do it. So it could be the fact that someone should stop being so helpful because they're making someone else feel like they can't get a job done. So the the, the strength is coming from a good place. Their probably intention is that helping people makes them feel good. They feel validation. And when it works, it works really well. But they're so used to it, they just keep doing it. It's like when someone's really methodical keep doing that when you know it's it works it works well in these situations but when we've got like a deadline and actually we don't have to get this perfect we just need to get something out like a proposal or we need to make a decision then being really methodical is not going to work because by the time you've gone through it all the deadline's passed and it's it's pointless so stop it's kind of saying what you should stop doing but acknowledging the fact that i understand why you're doing it that becomes powerful as feedback because then people are a bit like okay, you're not just telling me to stop and I don't understand why. It's like, oh, there is a reason why I'm doing that. It comes from a good place, but it's not working. You're giving someone the gift. People talk about the gift of feedback, but it's more about the gift of external self-awareness. People start understanding how their behavior plays out and how people see them. And when you start using the keep, start, stop, the keep, start, stop method, a bit of a tongue twister for me, um, and you ask people that, and I do it too. What should I, you know, I use it in my feedback when I do coaching. I ask people, what should I keep doing? Start doing, stop doing. It gives me way more than just if I was to ask a whole bunch of like questions about specific stuff. It makes people actually think about what I'm bringing to the, to the table. So yeah, man, I love it basically. So that's hopefully that, hopefully that's interesting to hear how I use it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, and I think sometimes I, I try and, you know, it's, it's something where it's not this idea that we should always think we have to, you know, everyone is super nice or like we have to kind of leave with this idea that, um, you know, always giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm not saying that if we see toxic cult, you know, toxic behavior in the workplace or we, if there's bully, bullying or anything like that, you have to call that out. The issue is when you, it's not that it's just that your brain is running to a conclusion that oh this person is um being unfair or this person is you know doing things and 
I can't understand why, so I'm just going to assume it's a bad thing because it doesn't work for my brain. It doesn't really help us because it doesn't really give us much chance to like, you know, develop them, especially if we're leading them as a as a as a as a manager or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think feedback is 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 such an important thing for anyone that wants to cultivate their self awareness because it improves. You know, if you start getting comfortable giving people feedback, that's a great skill to have because a lot of managers I work with get scared about giving feedback. So finding the right way of doing that is important and receiving it is so important because it allows you to see accurately how you come across to other people and not kind of live in a sort of maybe a past fantasy about about what your behavior is because our behavior is constantly evolving. So checking in with it is important. And the best way for a non-biased check-in is to get someone else to do it with us and to allow someone to feel comfortable about doing it with us as well. Awesome, man. Thank you uh, for sharing all those insights. And right now we're nearing the end of the this conversation. So I'm curious, what is one big takeaway you want listeners to take away from this episode? Okay, so hopefully, hopefully just just the realization that maybe emotions are something that are worthy of us to treat as data or something that isn't just things we have to see and think, oh, that's an emotional experience. No, no, no. Everything's an emotional experience. And when you start thinking like that and you start diving a bit more into it, you'll learn a lot about yourself and other people. I guess a takeaway that a quick pragmatic takeaway that might be helpful for people that are thinking, okay, so I kind of understand how I get to understand myself better. How do I really get to understand someone else better without explicitly asking them the whole time, right? Um, And the way I think you can do that is start reframing small talk. You know, how much time do we spend having kind of conversations which are polite and kind of like, all right, but don't really tell us anything, you know? So if it's, I think I've told you about this before, but if you're wondering about someone you want to get to know them a bit better instead of asking them how was your weekend especially on a monday it's a monday right ask them what was the highlight of your weekend because just by changing that word you're getting them to have to share something specific they have to instead of saying oh it was good thanks it was all right they have to say oh actually yeah, it was this it was it was making sunday dinner with my wife and you can think Unless it's something so bizarre you can't relate to it, you can be like, oh, okay, that's that's cool. And you can then maybe say, oh, was it because, you know, you really like cooking? And they could be like, yeah, yeah. Or they could be like, not really. It's just because I get to spend that time, that precious time with my wife. It's the, it's the sharing of the occasion. The more you start asking questions, reframing small talk, the more you start learning what drives people. Because then if I know why you enjoy having your Sunday roast with your wife, the reason why, I probably also can start learning why you like certain parts of your job, why you like going to do like a a Wim Hof cold shower, because the driving motivation will still be the same. You'll have the same reasoning for doing it, but you'll never find out if you don't start asking questions that just dig a little bit deeper. So I would say try, just because I I hear it so often, how was your weekend? I think, such a boring question ask what was the highlight because you'll find something out and that something could really help you uh, learn about that person in a deeper level and understand 
what drives their experience. Yeah, what was the highlight of your weekend? It was. It's a question I learned from you actually a few months back, and I started asking it, and it really works because it pulls people out of autopilot, and they really need to think and reflect on what they have done and what was meaningful to them. And by digging deeper, you discover all these drivers and motivations that is so helpful and such helpful data to also understand them in other situations. So thank you for this uh, this sharing this tip. Um, yeah, lastly, I want to, to, to ask you because you're doing really great work with Equip and helping so many people, you know, discover themselves and understanding themselves, become more effective and more happy in their, in their jobs. So where can people follow your work and connect with you or follow you? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you think that. And I'm, you know, likewise with you. And so I guess LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. I have a pretty uh, unique surname, Tom Zero. I guess you know, we both have quite unique names. You're going to find this pretty easy on LinkedIn. Um, I normally post quite a lot of content, be it articles, videos, or just sharing material, which I think kind of brings to light the importance and the kind of pragmatic nature of emotional intelligence, why it is something that we can all benefit from strengthening. Um, for those that have Instagram, you can follow my handle. It's equip uh, underscore CT. And then my website is www.equip underscore CT.com. Um, hopefully across those channels, there's going to be stuff that, that resonates with people. I, I always like to hear from people as well. So if anyone has a question, anyone just wants to have a conversation, um, reach out. I think the most important thing that I've ever learned is always be looking to build your network, always maintain strong relationships because it's those relationships that in the future will, will lead to opportunities. You know, there's a saying, it's like, it's not what you know, it's not who, it's who you know. Well, I think it's important to know something, but I think if you don't know people, then that something may never actually become anything because you don't have a chance to to really discuss it or to explore it with someone else. So love to hear from people, love speaking. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's also how we met, right? So um, valuable things can uh, can be built and can can arise from, from networking and connecting with other people, with strangers on the internet. Exactly, exactly. One way it can yeah. Thanks a lot for your time today, for spreading your insights about emotional intelligence, about seeing uh, questions in a, in a different light and how to use them in, in conversations, how to use emotional emotions as data and how to discover more about yourself, about other people. I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners have as well. So thanks a lot for your time and I hope to speak with you soon. Thanks, Gilbert. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I hope your listeners uh, are able to take something away from it. And yeah, really, really pleased and privileged to be part of this this podcast series. So I know it's going to be a great success. So yeah, great to be involved. Awesome. Thank you very much, Tom. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Do you want people to listen to your data and increase your business impact? Then take my free email course or do the quick self-test of your data communication skills. Go to mindspeaking.com and start learning today.